My burden this morning is not disconnected from what it's been for a while. I think that across the board, God is calling us to a new level. And there are people stepping into new places of ministerial service they've never walked in before. And that's creating voids that others are stepping into that is new for them. And we're stepping into open doors and new places. Some of you are brand new in the body of Christ. You've just been baptized last week, and you're going to be stepping into new places of responsibility and establishing the church in wherever you go, in, in the Netherlands or in India, wherever. So we all are kind of on the cusp right now, and, and we feel it. And we've been saying this entire year, this fabulous year of Jubilee, we've been saying it's a year of transition, and transition's dangerous. And we're still in it. And I don't know how long we're going to be in it, but we're still in those birth pangs. And you feel that God is giving us birth and relief on, on many fronts, but you just you still feel that there is a travail taking place in many individuals and therefore in all of us collectively. And I, I, I too have come to today with a burden about being self-centered. And, you know... I had a conversation with somebody yesterday, and it, uh, it was actually two conversations with two different people, but um, we were talking a little bit about just how the flesh can get you tripped up, and uh, you know, it's, it's more wily than we like to give it credit for sometimes, but the flesh can get you tangled up, and, and Brother Kevin has addressed this as um, the centipede's dilemma but you know how the, how the flesh will start arguing with the flesh in order to keep you from making an acceptable sacrifice. And it's like, if you do that, you're just trying to look spiritual. And if you do that, you're just trying to look humble. And if you don't do that, you're just trying to avoid looking proud. And you know how crazy it can get? <laughs> and I told him, I said, the key is to stop all of that and to become lost in the love of God for others and for Jesus. That's it. And that's what it means to not be centered in self. I think that my dad made it a central theme of his repentance book, that the change is going to amount to a change of orbit, where we were centered around and orbiting around self. Self's problems, self's guilt complexes, self's ambitions, self's ego and vainglory, whatever it is, it's still self. If it's bad things about self, it's still self. If it's good things about self, still self. Fearful things about self, still self. But repentance shifts our orbit and makes us to start orbiting around God, His love and his people. And that's ultimately, if you were to sum it up, if you were to distill it down, we're turned right side out for the first time. <laughs> we're not turned in with ourselves, And there's no progress to be gained by those of us in the birth canal, either of bringing forth our ministry or in coming to birth in the kingdom of God. There's no progress so long as we are focused on ourselves. We have to lose ourselves. That's what Jesus was meaning when he said, whoever takes up his cross and denies himself, 
I ministered a whole meeting about that word, deny himself. It's the same phrase used to deny the flesh. Amen. It's to disavow. It's to ignore. Amen. It's to say, I don't accept it. And become extroverted. Lay down our lives for the purpose of God. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Don't you feel the Lord trying to turn Peter right side out? And I want to talk about some of the mechanisms, some of the mental mechanisms, which we could call mental strongholds or bunkers, where our failure, our cyclical failure, gets cemented, gets protected, gets turned into a permanent disaster. And uh, part of what I want to talk about is, is the power of excuses and the power of words and the idea of cognitive dissonance. These are some of the, th- the three main themes that I want to talk about. And I want to start with the, the theory of cognitive dissonance. Uh, We've probably all heard about it. I certainly read about it in the literature. Leon Festinger's study back in the 50s or 60s where he put forth this theory of cognitive dissonance. And it's become uh, become a common term in modern vernacular. And it's, it's one of the most studied recently emerging theories in uh, neuroscience and human behavior. But it's the idea that Human beings are hardwired toward uh, consistency. And when they encounter this break or this difference in their life between what they think or feel, what they say or do, uh, what they experience and what they believe, when they encounter these contradictions, there is this cognitive dissonance. There's this tension that starts to beg for a solution. And wholeness or truth would bring alignment. There's a great quote about this that my dad has in the literature, but it would bring an alignment between what we say and what we do and what we feel and what we think. Amen? Bring this alignment between man and God, between man and man, between man and nature, between all of life. This is Eden. This is what was lost in the garden through sin. Sin brought fragmentation. Sin brought disintegration. And repentance brings integration. Relationship, wholeness, shema, peace, oneness, That's why the cornerstone of the Jewish faith and the Christian faith is the oneness of God. Every other religion, except those that are copycats afterward, every other religion is polytheistic by nature. But oneness is wholeness. Wholeness is life. Life is peace. And it's all trying to come back into alignment. So cognitive dissonance is a pretty prominent theory. And I read recently about the power that cognitive dissonance plays in excuse making. There's a guy, his name is Timothy Peichel, I believe that's how you say his name, but he's a PhD research scientist at Carleton University, and he has made himself the foremost expert on procrastination. (laughs) 
He has made himself the foremost expert on procrastination as a research scientist at Carleton University. And he says that the ubiquitous instinct toward excuse making in human behavior is to resolve cognitive dissonance artificially, wrongly. He says when there is a a jar, a rift, a tension inside of us that would otherwise promote a decision that would change us, excuse says, you don't have to. Let me explain why. And it calms down the inner agency of change and brings a moral reason that we can suck on like a lollipop, my addition, for why we are the way we are and why we're not going to change. Not a great thing, is it? <laughs> Amen. One of the, one of the uh, studies that is referenced in this whole uh, field of thought is the power of confession. Robert Cial, I don't know how you say his name, but Saldini uh, is one of the guys who's done the research on it. And he talks about how when people make, when people speak words, they conform their lives to their words. But he says, he talks about how oftentimes the belief system follows the words, not the words, the belief system. Does that make sense? We don't come to a conclusion, we don't come to a conviction and align our words to it. We speak words and align our lives to them. The problem is, is there's another study that says the reason we do this, the reason we speak these words that our public statements about ourselves are intended often to rationalize the inexplicable. It's to basically utter excuses that become belief systems, belief system that become more action. So it's this vicious cycle. He said that once, once you suggest, once an individual accepts a label about themselves, they tend to act consistently with that label. He says, people want to appear consistent in their commitments. When they make a commitment, especially public, they're more likely to follow through. But their commitments are driven to explain what they think is possible. So there's this other scientist, Dweck, Carol S. Dweck, and she says, the problem is that people evaluate themselves not as creatures in a state of becoming, but as static. They evaluate themselves with the presupposition that they can't change. So they want to discover who they are, what they are, in order to rationalize their future or their choices. But the problem, she says, is they think they're fixed. They don't realize they can change. I'm paraphrasing. Here's a quote. With a fixed mindset, people believe their basic qualities like intelligence or talent are simply fixed traits. 
They spend their time documenting their intelligence or their talent or lack thereof instead of developing their intelligence and their talents. They also believe that talent alone creates success without effort. They, they do this. We don't do this. Heichel, if that's how you say it, he says, and I'm going to quote him for just a little bit, we are sad excuse makers. I I thought his writing style was refreshing for a um, a psychoanalyst and a a researcher, Um, but then I found out that he was also an author. But he says, we are sad excuse makers. These excuses are strategies for reducing cognitive dissonance. They are really just lies that we tell ourselves, and this is the most pathetic part of it. Why do we lie to ourselves? Why not just own up to the discrepancy and recognize who we really are by the choices we actually make? I think it's because we don't want to face who we really are with these choices. We prefer to believe something very positive about ourselves. Slightly understated, but I like that. So when we act opposite to it, we don't want to face that this choice now defines us. Instead, we strategically reduce the dissonance by lying to ourselves. This is living in bad faith. I don't believe he's a Christian. This is living in bad faith, living a lie. No authentic engagement in our lives can occur. We don't have to be like this, though. It is a matter of choice. The descriptive is not proscriptive. He's saying this is what we're doing, but he says the descriptive is not proscriptive. And the normative trend need not be what we do the next time we experience the dissonance created by a behavior attitude discrepancy. Each of us can make the choice to more authentically engage in our lives by taking responsibility for our choices. At the very least, we could openly admit that there is a discrepancy and that we're simply too lazy or too indifferent to actually do anything. I haven't added anything yet. Instead, we focus on short-term mood repair. We give in to feel good and we make an excuse. So he says that, that when your life is in the tension of inconsistency, excuses is the tire patch kit. It's the mood repair kit that you use to avoid seeing the truth that might set you free. Seen like this, I think you might agree that this is a particular kind of pathos. Choice. We can't escape it. And psychological research doesn't prove that we're destined to reduce dissonance with excuses. The findings just indicate what's typical. My point is that what's typical is an aspect of human pathos, not the human agency upon which the best parts of our lives are built. Amen. (laughs) So I said, Lord... We make excuses because we don't want to face something about ourselves that needs to change. Why? 
because we don't believe it can change. And that's what that other scientist was saying. If we view the world with a mindset that we are fixed, then we are going to resort to excuses instead of to changing. God, change us. That's what we want to, that's what we want to happen in this meeting. We want to leave this meeting different people than we came in. We didn't come in here to hear descriptions about ourselves. We came to hear descriptions about ourselves and then cures whereby we could change who and what we are to become more like him. We came to be transformed. And if we don't believe in transformation, if we don't believe that every word is an opportunity to alter oneself, to be different, then why be Christian at all? Paul says we're supposed to be conformed to the image of God's son. This this one scientist said that as soon as you accept a label given by someone else or generated by yourself, you start to conform yourself to that label. When God shows us that we are sinful, is that a label? Do we start to conform ourselves to that sinfulness? Is that a label? No. It doesn't have to be. You see, they don't allow that there are two natures at war inside of us. There is a nature that is born of God and there is that which is not born of God. And to discover the faults of the fallen nature is hopeless unless there's the possibility of the new nature. Amen? That can become greater and can take, take over this mess that the fallen nature has created. So when God comes to us and says, you're full of pride. The word of God, a circumstance, a friend shows us that we're full of pride. We can, we're only going to fall to pieces if we have no option to change. And we only have no option to change if there's no grace and new nature. If knowing the truth makes us enslaved instead of setting us free. But this is a lie. When God shows us something about ourselves, it's not to condemn us. It's to empower us to make the pivot. But that pivot is hard. You say, but I thought it was by grace. It is by grace. But it's hard grace. It's the awful grace of God, to quote Eschilus. It's not easy. Because he gives grace to the humble. And humility is not easy. So we start off and we say, God's spoken to me. God's convicted me. And if the change could happen and be complete in this meeting, I'd be a different person. Because I've, I've really come into alignment. My mind has agreed with God. With my mind, I obey the law of God. It's there. I'm, I'm ready. But when we walk out of the meeting and we start to step toward the crucible of actual discipleship, of actual hard work and breaking habits, of actually humbling ourselves to brothers and sisters, we start recoiling and freaking out. And we say, I can't do that. We want it to be done for us. We don't just want grace. We want grace that is effortless. And that's the whole dogma about false grace that we see around us. Amen. But that's not the grace of God. 
The grace of God that brings salvation is a teaching and discipling agent. We've shown that before. The grace of God that was in Paul's life, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not without effect, for I worked harder than them all. But it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. And we don't want to work harder than them all. We don't want to engage in the difficult task of changing. And so then we return to that repair kit of an elaborate excuse for why we are the way we are and why we can't be different. There's the sour grace, grape excuse. How does that work, the sour grapes excuse? It besmirches what you once reached for. You ever seen that? Somebody stands up in a meeting and says, God is calling me. I want to give myself completely. And they never move forward. They never actually do what they committed to. Their next step is going to be to find somebody who did what they promised to do and pick on those people. Pick on them. Talk about how they're so self-righteous or they're so showy or they're so proud or they're so holier than thou. Amen. Pick on those who got what you reached for but refused to pay the price to receive. Amen. That difficult grace, that, that, that squeeze of the flesh, that rock and hard place that said, there's no out. You're going to have to change. Yeah, I, I can't do this. This is just too much. So you say, ah, the grapes are sour. I don't really want that in my life. I was thinking this morning of, of what Martha might have, uh, might have said about Mary. I don't want to be like Mary. She's just looking for a showy place. I'm proud of my humble, unseen role in the back of house. Did you catch that? I'm proud of my unseen role, my humble role in the back of house. You, you believe that was really what was working in her when she was concerned about Mary? No. She's not concerned about Mary being showy. It's a lie. She's concerned about herself and she's unwilling to pay the price. And I'm sure God gave her the grace and she did eventually pay the price. But in the story, she's unwilling to show the humility that would have released the grace that Mary was basking in. Think about Judas. I asked myself, what would, what would Judas's excuse have been if we could have heard it? You know, I bet it would have been elaborate. I bet it would have been amazing. I think it might have gone something like this. You think I want to be like Peter? Are you kidding me? He's always putting his foot in his mouth. And he's always putting himself forward. So arrogant, that Peter. No, no, I, I'm taking the humble role at the back. Peter, he's first out of the boat. First to answer Jesus' questions. First into the tomb. And he's first to be slapped across the bridge of the nose and called Satan. Me? No, no. I don't want to be out there in the open and risk being called Satan. I want to assess and calculate behind the scenes and let Satan take, take up housekeeping in my fears, excuses, bitterness, and judgment. He might not have said that last part, but 
We, did, we do know that Peter was called Satan, but we know that only Judas, about him it was said, Satan entered his heart. And what is the word that he's using there, whether in the Hebrew or the Greek, what is that word, Satan? Accuser. If you're going to look at it in its etymology, it reads like this, accuser entered his heart. Accusation entered his heart. That's exactly what entered Cain's heart. There's something gross. There's something pathetic, dishonest about human nature that is willing to make an excuse just because they're unwilling to pay the price. And the power of these commitments, when we see this in ourselves and we stand up and we say, I see this in myself, and I am not going to accept the excuses that I've chosen. Well, then we have the power of that public commitment working for us, pushing us out of the pockets and lies where we would try to hide from change. But when we start to confess with our mouths those little whispered lies that the devil gives us, we deploy the same power of confession unto the destruction of our souls. The Bible teaches us that words are not merely configured alphabet. They are power spoken that reality is going to conform to. When it's God's word, the worlds are framed. The centurion comes and says, only speak the word and my servant will be healed. When it's God's word, we're set free. Chains are broken. And when it's the devil's word... His will is also incarnated in our lives. And when we repeat our excuses, it's like reciting a prayer to the wrong God, letting his kingdom come and his will be done through this negative confession. God, take these idolatrous prayers out of our minds, out of our thinking, out of our conversation completely. You know, when there's a gap widening between the joints, by what every joint and ligament supplies, the joints of the body of Christ, when they are widening, we ask ourselves a question What is this, Lord? Do we just need more blood flow? Do we just need more love, forgiveness, mercy, attention, blood flow? Or is there a root of bitterness springing up that is going to cause trouble and defile many? Is there an infection? Is there the E. coli of accusation living in here? Because no amount of blood flow is going to solve that. It's just going to begin to contaminate the blood that is flowing around it. The difference calls for a radically different solution. I remember reading some 10 years ago about this man, and I don't, I, don't, I don't read a lot of this stuff and I don't recommend it, but somebody sent something to me about this man who had um, supposedly died and come back to life. And I did not have reason to doubt his experience, though my point is not to go off on a rabbit trail of what's happening in that scenario. That's neither here nor there. 
Um, we do know that Jesus has given example that someone can come back from the dead as a warning. So I allow for it. I, I think it's possible. But in his, in his um, experience, as he passed from this life, according to his viewpoint, he said that he, he found himself in this maze of hallways. And from every opening of all of these open doors and dark hallways, he heard arguments and accusations. Like the endless roar of a crowd that was do, doing nothing but complaining constantly. He was a minister and he believed that he was in hell. And the church began to pray for him and for whatever reason, the Lord brought him back. However, by whatever means, the Lord brought him back. And when he came back, he said, I just want to rid from my life the complaining spirit, the complaining word, the argumentative spirit altogether. And I think that there's potentially something profound in that because there is power in the words that we speak. Does the Bible teach us that? That there is power in the words that we speak? What does Jesus say, that, say about that in Matthew 13? By your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. It's only two times that he uses the word justified in all of his teaching. By your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. He says you will be judged for every idle word. An idle, you know, it means useless. Word with, with no follow-up. Word with no commitment. Word that is spoken that is, you don't live consistently with. The tongue can bring death or life. This is Proverbs 18, 21. The tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. Death or life. Proverbs 10, when words are many, sin is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 12, an evil man is trapped by his rebellious speech, but a righteous man escapes trouble. Do you think it's possible to be trapped by rebellious speech? You think it's possible to utter things and repeat things and murmur things and complain about things until that becomes your reality? Even if it's all just an elaborate excuse for not paying the price, that seems too high. It makes me feel like God is trying to speak something to the body that says the gaps are going to be closed when you get the infection out. Not the diminished blood flow. That's easily solvable. It's a real problem, but it's solvable. But the infection of criticism and biting remarks and negativity and this little drivel that cuts us down and undermines us and calls into question, that can destroy our souls. Amen. I believe God is calling us to a new level of consecration, to consecrate our words, to consecrate our thoughts, to consecrate our feelings, 
to bring everything into alignment and rid ourselves of cognitive dissonance so that we're not blessing God with one word and cursing our brother with another so that out of the same fountain doesn't come poison and fresh water. We need better than that, brothers and sisters. We're going to need every grace of God. And if we would call a holy fast on bickering talk and limit ourselves to what is constructive, to what is edifying, to what builds up instead of tears down, God's going to help us. And we're going to feel a grace start to flow in our lives. Amen. And we're going to lose our excuses. We're going to lose our little jabs that let us off the hook. But what we're going to find is the opportunity to change. And it's going to be difficult, but he's going to be with us in the crucible as we say, yes, Lord, change me, break me, do whatever you want. I'm yours for your glory. Amen. I'm going to stretch forth my arms and be led in a way I would not go, but I'm not going to stay the Peter I am today. In 2 Timothy, Paul says that the influence of useless chatter is a message that will, quote, spread like gangrene. In Ephesians, Paul said, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. Is this building others up according to the needs that it may give grace to the hearers? Am I giving grace? Oh God, I hope we are. If it's not giving grace, if it's not building up, then it's tearing down and it's pulling grace out of the picture. If I'm not gathering with, then I'm scattering abroad. If I'm not on his side, then I'm on the enemy's side and I'm just praying those prayers that are going to become my life. Excuses ratified through repetition. Lies to salve the cognitive dissonance in my soul. I think about what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount and how much time he devoted to the words and the feelings that a brother has toward a brother. Do you remember? He says, if you call your brother, you know, an idiot or a fool or whatever, you're in danger of hellfire. That if you're, if you're angry with him without cause, he was very focused on the attitudes we had toward each other and the way we treated each other. He didn't get real deep into the doctrine of justification in his Sermon on the Mount, but he got real deep into the doctrine of love between brothers on the Sermon on the Mount. And it shows us the priority that he places on these things to tell us that we are in danger of hellfire. Regardless of what we think our status with God is, if we treat our brother this way, we are in danger of hellfire. If you think of all the times when he says something like that, there aren't very many. There's really just a handful, about five or six times when he brings hell as a consequence for something. But he reserves one of those occasions to be the way brothers treat brothers. I don't think we give enough honor to this, brothers and sisters. I think God wants to consecrate us. I think God wants to free us before communion and before the fair and before these steps that he's calling us to. He wants to free us. Free us from these excuses that turn into accusations. I think you can make the leap. 
You have been trapped by the words of your lips. You have been ensnared by the words of your mouth. Somebody says, I can't move forward. I can't get a victory. You need to go undo every lie you've confessed and open that trap back up. It's got you around the ankle like a bear trap. Amen. You can't move on from it because of what you said. Maybe in secret to a brother. Maybe in jest, but a little mockery. And then you sit in a meeting and you say, I could change right now. I could be different. But then the, the devil says, no, remember that thing you confessed to me and your brother? You can't do it. You got, you got to stay who you are. Oh, God, set us free. In Jesus' name, set us free. Accusations. Accusations of what you don't want to be, of how someone's not doing it right. You know, Paul says, they're the Lord's servant. Don't you judge somebody else's servant. They are God's servant. There's a certain kind of picking and undermining and challenging and cutting down it is sin, and I don't believe we can be saved while it lives inside of us. I do not. Whether that man's experience is valid or not, I believe hell is going to be full of the accuser of the brethren. And all of those who decided to align their lives according to his narrative instead of the one who opened not his mouth did not revile when reviled did not respond when accused, was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Sometimes the most insidious, resilient image of all is the image of having no image. Somebody steps out and does something, somebody moves forward in God, and we say, I don't want to be like that. That's just an image. Well, is that what you're afraid of? You're more afraid of having an image than dying where you are like a leper who never got off his seat? Well, then that's your image. You've got the image of having no image. You're still centered in self. Get out of yourself and run after God with all your heart. Lose yourself for the sake of God and his people. Don't sit there and talk about how you don't want to be like this one because you're afraid you're going to look like that one. I wrote down a quote from my dad. <clears throat> it can be found in building Christian character. He says, humility is not thinking evil of oneself. Nor indeed is it thinking good of oneself. It is thinking so much of God and others that little to no thought is left for oneself. We can do that. We can do that. When I was in Wisconsin, I shared with the brothers... From Hebrews eleven twenty four, where it's listing the heroes of faith and their exploits, and um, it has always struck me reading that chapter. Some of the things that he categorizes, and how he can, he puts certain exploits along with others, giving them a different value or, or standard than I would have thought. And, um, you know, he talks about how they shut the mouths of lions, how they quenched the fire of, you know, the fire of whatever it was, persecution. He talks about how they were sawn in two. 
He talks about how they lived in, in holes in the ground. Talks about all these things. That they, and then he'll put in there, others were tempted. Like that was just as big a deal. Right along with the mouths of lions and the fire of persecution and all this. And, and, then, and then he'll put in there things like, they lived in tents. And I, I've lived in a tent long enough to know that I, I can relate a little bit. But seriously, he puts that faith to be a tent dweller right along with the other hard things that they experience. And, and right in there, the one that came to me again this morning, 1124, he says, Moses, when he was of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, enjoying rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Or as the NIV says, the pleasures of sin for a season. And my whole life I've heard that scripture and my whole life I've, I've focused on and emphasized that he refused the pleasures of sin and he chose the reproach of the congregation, which is great. But all of that is merely a description of the main point. The, writer, the writer's main point is that Moses refused to be called something. So you could say that Moses' great act of initial faith was rejecting an identity and then choosing an identity. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And, you know, in his case, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, I suppose, in whatever they were speaking in Egypt at that time, that would have been something analogous to prince, right? Prince of Egypt, right? That's probably where they got that name. He refused it. That name had attached to it power. It had attached to it prestige. It had attached to it wealth. It had attached to it, in short, everything that being a slave was not. And he refused it. I don't want you calling me that. Don't call me that. That's not me. Amen. But there are other identities that the devil can stick on us. Even true things about us, the devil can make that our identity instead of an insight that we can receive in order to overcome. He can, he can put on us loser. He can put on us old and useless, past its prime. He can put on us impotent. He can put on us fearful. He can put on us Proud, and those things may be true in their particulars, but they don't have to be who you are. Because God has given us a new name and a new identity. And if you decide to stay with that tag that the devil slipped on you after God has promised you to give you his spirit his name in baptism, his love and membership in his body, 
then that remains your choice for which you must assume responsibility. But you can refuse. (laughs) You can refuse that identity. You can refuse the identity of the excuse maker. Amen. And I believe that is one of the more powerful steps of faith that God could call any of us to. That's not me. And I don't mean it in a kind of denial that I'm not that bad. Oh, no, I'm that bad and worse, but I refuse to be that. You follow me? Do you see that as an exertion of faith? So for all of you who are, who are still there, I ministered a couple weeks ago. It's supposed to be this hard. And I guess this is a continuation of that. But for all of you who are still in the crucible and you're feeling like you're stretched and I want to say as God stretches you, you're going to see your cognitive dissonance. You're going to feel it. And that is an opportunity to make a decision that brings a change. Do that. Don't pull out the mood repair kit and choose to hide behind a lie. Because that lie will turn into an accusation and that accusation will snare you in a trap you can never get out of. The Lord wants to open the bear traps that we've set for ourselves today. (laughs) Hallelujah. And if we just humble ourselves to him, that is the only prerequisite for grace. Humbling ourselves, And the greatest humbling we can give is to tell the devil he's a liar and to tell our own excuses they're big lies. You say, well, but this did happen. That's not the point. That's not the point. Is that God? Is that Jesus? Did that excuse conquer Jesus at the cross? Did that excuse hold the stone over the grave and keep him from coming out? Well, if it didn't keep Jesus from coming out of the grave, it can't keep you from changing and becoming more like him. We renounce it in Jesus' name. We refuse it in Jesus' name. We want to be different and we choose to give up those excuses for why we can't be. You know, that first guy that I quoted said, excuses allow us to go against and confess what we know to be true. And that's what I'm appealing to inside of us. Even if we've hidden behind these, there's something inside of us. There's still a voice that we know contradicts that excuse. We need to get down and fan that voice to flame. I just want to share something as we start here. You can go ahead. But we had a question on the broadcast recently. Somebody wrote in and wanted to know, what does it mean in the Bible when it talks about a covenant of salt? And we weren't able to answer the question at the time, but I I looked into it and looked into some scriptures about it. Because it's mentioned a few times in the Old Testament that we should make a covenant of salt with one another. And... Some of the commentators that I read pointed out that salt is the opposite of leaven. That leaven is a corrupting agent, but salt is a preserving agent. It, it removes the possibility for corruption. You know, and that, that passage you read there, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others. And there's a parallel scripture in another epistle where he says, let your speech always be seasoned with salt 
that it may impart grace to the hearers. You know, you just feel like, you know, we're headed towards communion here. We're headed to renew our covenant. The covenant that would preserve us from generation to generation. That would make us a witness. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's what brings the light to the world is that we're able to preserve and continue with relationships that last, that grow, that stay good and sweet and are not corrupted. You know, you just feel like the word of God is cleaning us today. You know, you want to, and, and, and you ask yourself, we're headed into the fair, we're headed into, into times of, of outreach and, and, and you say, God, I want to I wanna bring your word <laughs> seasoned with salt into every place of my life, into every place that I may go, into every relationship that I may move into, or all those that I may encounter, what we're really saying is, I want to bring Jesus to these people. And, and I thought of the passage, whatsoever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. Because I know there is peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. I just want to speak the name of Jesus Till every dark addiction starts to break Declaring there is hope and there is freedom I speak Jesus Your name is power
Jesus from the mountains, Jesus in the streets, Jesus in the darkness over every enemy. Jesus for my family, I speak the holy name, Jesus. Jesus for my faith. 